0: I'm Kira Butler. I'm Tom Philpot. I'm Maddie Oatman. Welcome to Bite. We've got a lot cooking for you today. First up, Tom's gonna give us a rundown on his new hard-hitting investigation for Mother Jones, which is about antibiotics in the poultry industry. Then I'm gonna solve the mystery of how food behaves at 32,000 feet. After that, Kira and Tom interview Bill Marler, the nation's leading attorney in foodborne illness outbreaks.
1: Okay, so first things first, um, this blockbuster story that Tom just wrote about antibiotics and chicken. Um, Tom, can you tell us about this massive feature story that published online earlier this week?
2: Yeah, so I did a kind of a deep dive into the meat industry's sort of decades and decades and decades of reliance on antibiotics to make animals grow faster to, yeah, you know, the idea is that when animals get daily low doses of antibiotics, they they grow faster and it takes less feed to fatten them up. And it's become this sort of crutch the industry has relied on for a, a long time. So I kind of dove into the history of it and all the problems around it, you know, the most obvious one being the rise of antibiotic resistant bacteria that leak out of farms in various ways and get into people and make us sick and contributing really to this kind of global crisis we're having in antibiotic resistance where all over the world including the united states that these drugs that we rely on to um fight infections when we get sick are getting are becoming less and less effective and so the, the story kind of does two things it looks at the history of it and the most surprising thing to me is that this problem of antibiotic resistance and the idea that it's going to make these drugs less effective for people um, has been known for decades. The the FDA knew about it uh, as far back as the 60s. It was on the point of telling the meat industry to stop what it was doing in 1977. And, you know, 38, 39 years later, the FDA is still allowing the practice. Um, But the good news that I found is that there's one... Company, this gigantic chicken company called Purdue that's based in the Delmarva region of uh, sort of far eastern Maryland that is uh, sort of on its own and has been for a while experimenting with pulling back on the practice and reining it in and stopping using so many antibiotics. And it was just, uh, to me, fascinating that this company, kind of without regulators on its back pretty much at all, made this decision to to stop. Um, the problem is that it's just one company and it's just one species, poultry. There's pork and there's beef. And companies in those two areas have not really yet started to pull back. And so we had this looming ongoing crisis, but we're starting to see some change and uh, mainly driven by this one company.
1: So the question that I have is, if nobody else is really doing this, what is in it for Purdue? I mean, presumably, this is hugely expensive for Purdue to stop using antibiotics.
2: Well, I think they figured out um, a while back, around 10 or so years ago, that the public was not going to put up with this. And even if the FDA wasn't going to step in and force the industry's hand, people were learning about it. Um, It was becoming this, this crisis. I mean, Something like 23,000 people a year die from just this one kind of antibiotic resistance called MRSA. And and then there's all, all other different kinds of connections to, to farms besides that. And so the, the sort of the, the cat was getting out of the bag. And the industry, and we've seen this with other industries, uh, cigarettes, uh, big oil, the, the sort of first reaction, the sort of reflexive reaction was to just deny. And I think Purdue kind of saw that that strategy um, wasn't going to work in the long term, that it didn't work for tobacco, that's probably not going to work for fossil fuel industry, and that if they could get ahead of the game and start changing it, they would get a competitive advantage. And one of the things they found was that once you get an a, a antibiotic-free program up and running, it actually saves you money, or at least doesn't cost very much, because you're these companies are paying money for the antibiotics and so if you don't use them you get that savings and so the question is how do you control under these really kind of factory-like conditions how do you control diseases and how do you keep the animals growing fast without them and they had time to experiment and figure that out but I think it was all about getting a you know a competitive advantage and getting ahead of the industry on this uh, on this topic they thought they would inevitably have to deal with
0: and what were some of the ways they figured out to control bugs without antibiotics?
2: Well, they, they've experimented with a few things. And the ones that from talking to them that have stuck are things like probiotics, like throwing in, you know, essentially the same thing that we get in our yogurt, because uh, it turns out that the way that antibiotics were working to make animals grow faster was probably this mechanism based on the, the gut microbiome of the animal. And so, if they they figured if they could manipulate it in a different way, instead of killing certain microbes, if they could um, uh, sort of add more add more of the right beneficial microbes to the mix, they can get a similar effect. They also found that oregano has natural antimicrobial properties, and if they put that in, it could control some of the um, bad bugs that get into these into these uh, chickens without um, causing resistance or contributing to antibiotic resistance, Um, a few things like that. And down the road, and according to the company, and I, I kind of came away believing this, that they figured that if they made things a little bit more comfortable on the chickens themselves, if they were under less stress, they would perform better. And so things like it used to be in Purdue houses, like in most chicken houses in the country, the lights would be on 24 hours a day. And the idea was to keep the birds awake and eating. Because an eating bird is a bird that's gaining weight. And they figured that that's obviously pretty stressful. And so they started experimenting with turning the lights off at times, which is more complicated than you might think in a chicken house, because when the lights go on, if all the birds stampede toward the food, you can get birds getting um, sort of pushed out of the food, you can get birds getting stampeded. And so they had to do it slowly and kind of carefully.
0: Well, to catch people up, uh, we're talking about Tom's future story uh, for Mother Jones called How Factory Farms Play Chicken with Antibiotics. So you can go to motherjones.com, check that story out. It's also the cover story for the May-June 2016 issue. Tom, one other question. Other than getting to see adorable, fuzzy little yellow chicks that had just hatched, which presumably was maybe your favorite part of reporting this story what was your favorite part of re- reporting this story
2: <laughs> i mean it was it was getting sort of let in to this industrial hatchery and it really was impressive to see these e- these like huge trays of eggs getting put into this sort of massive machine and sort of working you could see them sort of gradually being worked through and then go to the other side of it of the machine the output side and seeing them after 18 or 20 days And, you know, literally over there is this cacophony of little eeps and squeaks and these adorable birds with uh, these adorable tiny little yellow fuzzy chicks with, uh, you know, remnants of eggs stuck to them. And then the most impressive thing of all was seeing those very little chicks on this conveyor belt. And work. I mean, it is a very factory-like setting. It is straight out of the Lucille Ball, except for it works smoothly. The famous I Love Lucy scene or Charlie Chaplin It is, it is the sort of bird as widget going through this machine, Um, but just, you know, super impressive in terms of, and, you know, really industrializing this biological process Um, is kind of stunning to see.
1: Awesome. Um, It's a great piece that Tom wrote for uh, this issue of Mother Jones. Um, And like Maddie said, you can check it out on the website. This week, Maddie is our food detective, and she looked into a different kind of industrial food. Um, She had a chat with somebody who figures out how food behaves differently when it's way up in the air.
0: So I got to talk to Brad Farmeri, who is the chef proprietor of five restaurants, including Public in New York City. And that's just on the ground. Recently, he was tapped by JetBlue to lend a gourmet touch to the airline's new first class menu. When he first heard about the project, though...
3: Initially, my thought was, no way do I want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And, you know, very selfishly, I said that I only wanted to do it if I thought we could be the best. And so we talked a lot with JetBlue, and, you know, they were very, very... I think that the best possible thing was that they had never, ever served food like this on board. So they had no preconceived notions as to what was possible, or probable, or what we were capable of. And of course, I had never tackled a project like this before either. So um, I purposely did zero research. Um, I took what I thought would be incredible um, items off of our menu, and I was like, we're just going to figure out how to make this work.
0: Part of the challenge was dealing with the way food behaves differently up at a cruising altitude of 32,000 feet.
3: You know, I've read a lot of studies and um, seen some... Research that says up to 20% can can be um, it can be dulled up to 20%. So a lot of the other airlines um, make up for that by increasing salt. I think hmm. that the salt content is huge and very high, it's almost probably unpalatable um, at uh, ground level and up in the air. That's how they try to make up for for this loss of of sense. And I think we went about it a very different way, where we looked at um, sweet, sour, salty to some extent, but also spicy and fresh. I think that these were things that we thought could amp up um, where those senses are being lost. So we're looking at um, increasing that kind of souring agent with the use of yogurt, preserved lemon, uh, yuzu, different vinegars. Um, We're looking at adding heat, but not just chili heat, but using things like Aleppo, which is a sun-dried chili, and things like Szechuan peppercorn kind of gives you that warming sensation. Um, and then also umami. You know, we, we kind of sneak in some big umami boosts like miso, uh, kombu seaweed, and dried shiitake mushrooms mm-hmm. where people would least expect it.
0: Heating methods are typically pretty one-dimensional on an airplane. Everything has to be heated at the same temperature for the same amount of time. So Brad was especially excited when he discovered a way to serve poached eggs with runny centers. Though he wouldn't tell me his secret method.
3: As you're flying to the West Coast, you'll be getting a shakshuka, which is a kind of Israeli, Middle Eastern style um, egg dish. And you will burst into a deliciously soft center of a poached egg.
0: Well, the next step will be convincing Brad to redo the menus in economy classes for all airlines because that sounds pretty delicious. Well, now that we've solved that mystery, it's almost time for our feature interview. But first I have to ask you, listener, have you been enjoying our biweekly episodes of Byte? Probably the best way to help us is to go into iTunes, rate us, and write us a short review. This could help us rise in the charts, which can mean a lot more people could hear about Bite. Thank you so much for your help.
1: Okay, so Tom, when I say jack-in-the-box, what is the first thing that comes to mind?
2: It takes me straight back to my '70s childhood and just how bad I wanted to go there because it's a, here. Here you have a burger chain literally named after a kid's toy.
1: Well, another thing that comes to mind for many people is something a little bit less savory. Um, I'm talking about the 1993 E. coli outbreak at Jack in the Box. Um, it's probably still the most famous foodborne illness outbreak in recent history. And today's guest is the reason it got so famous. Bill Marler is a Seattle-based attorney who represents victims of food poisoning. And when I say food poisoning, I don't mean your run-of-the-mill, I ate something funky and now I have a tummy ache. We're talking serious, life-threatening illness, long-term disabilities, and even death caused by dangerous pathogens like E. coli and listeria. In a landmark case, Bill Marler represented a victim of the -the jack-in-the-box outbreak and won. And since then, he's gone up against dozens of food industry giants whose food has sickened customers like McDonald's and KFC and Cargill and Taco Bell, Odwalla, and most recently, Chipotle. In addition to his work as a lawyer, Marler is also a food safety advocate, and he fights for our government to tighten the rules that food suppliers have to follow. He was instrumental in urging the passage of the 2010 to 2011 FDA Food Safety Modernization Act, and he runs a great website about food safety, aptly called Food Safety News, and he blogs at MarlerBlog.com. Bill, it's great to have you on the show.
4: Thank you very much.
1: So, um, tainted hamburgers and poison burritos are topics that uh, most people would prefer not to think about, and yet you've devoted your entire career to them. So- I have to ask, what got you so interested in food gone bad?
4: Well, I guess you could just say I was in the right place at the wrong time, or the wrong place at the right time. Um, see, I was a young lawyer when the Jack in the Box case hit Seattle uh, in January of 1993. Um, I remember first hearing about it. I was—I uh, I live on an island across from Seattle, and I was uh, on the ferry coming in and. Um, we had a, at that time, had a morning paper and an evening paper. And so I was reading the morning paper and it was, there was this discussion about some food poisoning outbreak at a, a local restaurant. And by the time I got to the office and over the next 24 hours, um, it blew up to uh, 500 people in the Puget Sound region. Uh, eventually, four children died. 50 were in. The hospital. They were flying dialysis machines in from Minneapolis and other cities because we didn't have enough dialysis equipment to take care of the children. And uh, I got hired by um, one of the families whose child was hospitalized for over six months.
2: So, Bill, I wonder if you might talk us through exactly what happened with that outbreak. Like, how did this tainted meat get into the supply at, at at this restaurant chain? The
4: beef industry,
2: um, what
4: is and frankly um, was at the time and still is incredibly powerful, and uh, especially farm state Congress members and senators uh, do their bidding. Um, e. coli, Salmonella, uh, Campylobacter uh, are all deadly pathogens, but at the time it was just simply okay to have it in our beef supply, primarily because of a 1970s case, uh, the American Public Health Association versus Earl Butts, where basically the government and industry sided together and simply said that it's the consumer's responsibility, i.e. the 16-year-old burger flipper. Um, it's their responsibility to cook the pathogen out of the meat. And so there was no testing of any sort. Um, they, they basically just ignored it and they ignored it to their peril and to the peril of a number of customers who are no longer with us today.
1: So what has changed since then? I mean, presumably things have gotten at least a little bit better.
4: Well, you know, as it relates to the beef industry, it's in my view it's gotten a lot better. Um in 1994, uh a, a gentleman by the name of Mike Taylor was appointed head of FSIS, Food Safety Inspection Services, which is the arm of the USDA that has responsibility over the meat supply. And the Clinton administration, obviously, it wasn't just Mike doing this, it was the Clinton administration, made the decision that E. coli 0157H7, which is this pathogenic bug that sickened and killed these kids, was going to be determined to be an adulterant and not to get too deep into the legal weeds, but basically... It said, and Mike said, it cannot be in hamburger, period, end of story. Um, the beef industry freaked out, uh, sued the government. The government won in court by basically saying we have a responsibility to protect consumers. And over the last you know, two decades, the beef industry and government have stepped up and um, it's not perfect. There's still an outbreak here, an outbreak there. But from 1993 to 2003, 90 plus percent of the revenue of my law firm was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. Today, that's nearly zero.
1: But here we are, a quarter of a century later, and we're still having these problems, like, like Chipotle. I mean, man, what is wrong with Chipotle?
4: <laughs> well, you know, I always feel a bit like. Either myself or food safety in general is sort of the the Dutch boy sticking his fingers in a dike. You know, you s- stick it in over here, and it stops the flow, and something pops up over here. Um, you know, with respect to Chipotle, yeah, I I was remember talking to a reporter for the New York Times and about the time that Chipotle outbreak started, and uh, I said, you know, if you had a month ago announced on you know over the loudspeaker hey i'm going to buy lunch for everybody um what's the safest thing to eat chipotle or mcdonald's i would guarantee you that 90% of the people would have said chipotle because we do believe and not inappropriately that local organic non-gmo humanely raised food with integrity has safety features that i agree with because that's frankly the way my family eats But you can't start believing your own hype so much that you don't believe in sort of the rules of bacteriology. And I think that's what kind of caught Chipotle. They were focused on a good thing, but they weren't paying attention to the thing that was going to bite them, which was a salmonella outbreak in Minnesota linked to a large uh, tomato grower, uh, 2 norovirus outbreaks linked to ill employees, and a E. coli outbreak that, frankly, was likely linked to a non-perishable item like meat uh, that was cross-contaminated within restaurants throughout the United States. So um, it's it's a different outbreak than uh, jack-in-the-box, and you shouldn't feel like, oh my goodness, the world is falling apart because we still have outbreaks. It's just that we have to keep up with these bugs.
2: Now, Bill, E. coli zero, zero 0517 is an example of something that industry said, hey, if you regulate this, it's going to kill us. We're not going to have a beef industry anymore. And that ended up not being true. Um, now, we, we it's regulated. It's... Um, if, piece of beef has that in it. It's taken off the line, et cetera, et cetera. And then now it seems like salmonella is is a big flashpoint. Talk us through salmonella and the politics around whether or not it's an adulterant.
4: E. coli 0157 was made an adulterant by the work of the Clinton administration. Um, again, as I said earlier, they were sued by the beef industry and the beef industry lost primarily because courts will defer to the government, especially when it comes to the safety of consumers. And they were able to present a lot of evidence that said E. coli 0157 is unsafe, in a sense, unsafe at any speed, to borrow a phrase from the 60s. Um, In 1971, uh, the American Public Health Association sued FSIS, sued the federal government to say, we're really worried about salmonella uh, in meat. We want to have a label on it. And the government and the industry said, you don't need a label on it. You don't need a cooking label on it. And so because housewives, and this is in the court's decision, housewives know how to handle their food. Oh, my God. So salmonella, salmonella has been In a sense, given a special status of not being adulterant, there is no question from a scientific, moral perspective. If USDA, uh, head of USDA in the Obama administration, had backbone, they could, uh, and honestly should, declare salmonella an adulterant, uh, just like salmonella is an adulterant in lettuce or cucumbers or avocados or cookie dough. I mean, everything else salmonella is an adulterant in except for meat. And yes, the industry would balk and squawk and maybe sue. But ultimately, there's no difference in how 0157 can be handled and these other nasty E. coli pathogens, and salmonella.
1: So I have to ask you, Bill, how careful are you about what you eat personally? Um,
4: well, now that I'm, you know, getting closer and closer to 60, I probably should pay a lot more attention <laughs> to what I eat. And, and the reason I say that is um, the, the vulnerable populations in the U.S. are the very young, Um, women who are pregnant and, you know, people who are over 60, 65. Um, And uh, simply because your immune systems are are not as vigorous uh, as they should be. There are things that I avoid, Um, you know, unpasteurized milk, unpasteurized juices. I avoid sprouts. I avoid bagged salad, pre-washed bagged salad. Um, I Probably cook my meat a little bit more than most people. Uh, probably even more than even the USDA recommends. But um, you know, I those are some pretty standard, I think, precautions that you know all people can take um, to to be a little safer.
2: So, Bill, we have to go back to this question of bag salad because now here here's an industry that has been growing very rapidly, continues to grow rapidly, and you know, it's a it's a convenient way for people to you know uh, accept the advice to eat more fresh food, eat more eat more vegetables, and yet it's got a pretty big problem. Can you talk us through what that is?
4: There was a E. coli outbreak, a tragic, tragic E. coli outbreak, two thousand six, linked to spinach. Um, two hundred and five people sick, five deaths. Ultimately, we found that it was linked to about a 20-acre in-transition organic farm. It was in the second year of transitioning to the third year to be sold as organic, so it was not officially organic. That product was cut and sent to a central processing facility where it was triple-washed, bagged, and shipped across the country. And ultimately, what we found is is that there had been some animal intrusion in that field where some wild pigs had gotten in um, and did their business and left. Now, if you think about it, not all 20 acres of that spinach was contaminated. It was contaminated in certain areas where the pigs did their business. If you had gone through and let that spinach grow and cut it in bunches, like you used to be able to buy it in a grocery store, and it had been shipped across the country you would have possibly but not likely had a few illnesses you would not would not have had 205 so the problem with processing is on one hand you spend millions and millions of dollars tens of millions of dollars on these processing facilities and technologically they're really advanced and they can do a great job but if you've got contaminated in, you know inputs that overwhelm your triple washing procedures, and you bag it and ship it across the country in refrigerated vans that may or may not be as temperature sensitive as they should be, I, you know, uh, that their temperature gauges may be off and that the bacteria can grow, you can have a incredible problem. And so, um, yeah, it's a little less convenient. But, you know, when I get salad, I go to the grocery store and I buy a bunch and I take it home and I wash it myself.
2: Fair enough.
1: I think it's time for this week's edition of Gross or Tasty, where we share foods that we've eaten over the week that are gross or tasty, and we invite our guests to do the same. So I'll kick off this week's Gross or Tasty with poha, and this definitely falls under the category of Tasty. I was visiting my husband's family last week, and my husband's mom is Indian from the region of Maharashtra, and uh, she made us for breakfast one day poha, which is a cereal kind of a dish made of flattened rice and potatoes and onions all cooked together with delicious Indian spices. Now, I'm not usually a savory breakfast person, but I make an exception for poha. This stuff is so, so good and so, so satisfying. Um, So, Tom, how about you?
2: So I'm going to talk about something that I've been using to make lots of tasty food with. And that is that I got a gift for Christmas this year of, it was a cast, imagine a cast iron skillet, right? But about double the size. It's round, but double the size of a cast iron skillet and no sloping edges. It's flat. It's like a flat grill, cast iron, pre-seasoned. And it, you know, it's kind of big and bulky. And when I got it, I was like, what am I going to do with this? I've already got cast iron skillets. It's so big. But it's actually transformed my cooking Um, because you can have, you can put it over three burners and have like a a cool, you know, kind of a warm side and a hot side and a medium side and have your whole dinner cooking on it at once. Um, You can make quesadillas, you can have like your quesadillas going, like your sort of tortillas heating up over here, your egg frying over there, some vegetables being sauteed on, on this part. So it is, it's it almost slices and dices and does everything you, you could possibly want.
1: <laughs> That's awesome, um, Bill. I was wondering whether you could share your gross or tasty experience of the week with us.
4: <laughs> well, uh, was it Friday evening? I came home from work and I uh, was I went fly fishing. I got on my waders and I walked into the surf near my house and. I caught a uh, about an 18-inch sea-run uh, cutthroat trout, um, and it was getting dark, so I brought the trout home, and I cleaned it and cooked it, and it was great. And it was swimming 15 minutes earlier when we had it for dinner.
1: Oh, my gosh. That sounds great. Are you a fly fisherman? Do you do that a lot?
4: Um, Well, when I'm not suing companies all over the country, there's a lot of things I wish I did more of, and fly fishing would be one of those.
2: This has been another episode of Byte. Casey Miner is our sound editor, Jenny Luna is our podcast fellow, and Seth Samuel wrote our theme song. Byte is a production of Mother Jones, a reader-supported nonprofit news organization.
4: Rx.